Chapter thirty five of the Awakening of Europe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Awakening of Europe by M. B. Singh. Chapter thirty five In the Days of Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell, our chief of men, who threw a cloud, guided by faith and matchless fortitude, to peace and truth thy glorious way hast ploughed. Milton The famous Navigation Act, which brought on the war between England and Holland, was one of the last acts in the life of the great Englishman Oliver Cromwell. Before telling the stories of the fine old sea admirals who fought in that war for the power of the seas, let us see what this man Cromwell had already done for his country. Oliver Cromwell was a very giant among men, the wonder of Europe and the glory of his age. Like the Pilgrim Fathers, he was a Puritan, steeped in the language of his Bible, intolerant of Roman Catholics. He had a mighty brain and a great soul, but he was no perfect hero, no spotless saint. He was just a strong man, who did what he thought best for his country in a difficult age. The young Oliver was four years old when Queen Elizabeth died, and James became King of England. There is a story that, when he was a small baby, a large monkey seized him out of his cradle and carried him up onto the roof of the house. Another story says that the very year of James's accession, his little son, Prince Charles, was worsted at fisticuffs while playing with Oliver Cromwell, who was but a year older than himself. But as the little prince did not speak till he was five, and crawled on his hands and knees till he was seven, this is not likely. It was a sorry day for England, when this same young prince became king, on the death of his father in 1625, and the long quarrels were begun, which ended only with his execution. Now England was governed by a king and parliament. This latter consisted of a number of men from all parts of the country, who decided on laws and taxes for the good of the land. In this parliament sat young Oliver Cromwell. No one thought much of him. He slouched in and out in a homespun suit, took little part publicly, and seemed glad enough to return to his farm, his wife, and children, near Eli in the eastern counties. It was not till Charles had plunged his country into civil war, by reason of his unjust taxation, that Cromwell rose to play his great part. There was no standing army in England at this time. Troops were raised by private people, and Oliver Cromwell found himself in command of a troop of horse. Together with his parliamentary friends, he was present at the first battle against the king. The king, helped by his fiery nephew, Prince Rupert, fresh over from the Thirty Years' War, was victorious. Cromwell knew why. "'Your troops,' he said to one of his friends, "'are old, decayed serving-men, and the king's troops are gentlemen's sons. Do you think that the spirits of such base and mean fellows will ever be able to encounter gentlemen that have honour and courage and resolution in them?' The final result of the whole war lay in these words. Cromwell now chose men for the army who were sternly Puritan, who had their hearts in the cause, who had some conscience in what they did. Every soldier henceforth had to undergo a severe training. 
Cromwell himself, having learned from a Dutchman the art of war, drilled the men, until he had a cavalry regiment under his orders, so fiery with zeal, so well restrained, that no body of horse could compare with it. No longer was there any thought of flight, none of retreat. Deeds of eternal fame were done, endless and infinite. From that day forward they were never beaten. So Cromwell and his Ironsides, as the soldiers were called, advanced to victory. Redcoats were worn for the first time in this new model army, as it was called. The king was finally beaten, and brought to trial in London. Then came the signing of the death warrant by Cromwell, and fifty-seven others, and preparations for the execution. The dignity which had failed the poor king in his life came to him in these last days. He was allowed to say good-bye to his young children, a scene among the most pathetic in history. Having taken them on his knee, and kissed them again and yet again, he ordered them to be taken away. When they reached the door, they flew back to his arms, sobbing aloud, until the wretched King Charles tore himself away, only to fall on his knees in prayer. Firmly he mounted the scaffold. As his head was lifted up to the sight of his subjects, a groan of pity and horror burst from the crowd. The news was received throughout Europe in silent horror. But the death of the king was a great landmark in history. The old rule was behind, and new rule was before. A new life had arisen for England, which would affect the history of Europe. Oliver Cromwell was now a king in all but name. Of his campaigns in Ireland and Scotland there is no time to tell. At the age of forty-three he had girt on his sword. At the age of fifty-two he laid it down. See what a multitude of people come to attend your triumph, they said to him when he returned from the wars. More would come to see me hanged, he had answered with a careless smile, knowing how unpopular he was. The country had been torn by war for ten years. Cromwell now turned his attention to a settlement of affairs. And first and foremost came the act, giving to the English increased power at sea with more far-reaching results than even Oliver Cromwell could foresee. End of chapter 35